Thanks to ZipRecruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. Staffing tech companies is tricky. From high turnover to rapidly changing skill sets, you really got to stay on your toes. ZipRecruiter knows this because they are a tech company too. So it's no surprise they've built a product that uses powerful machine learning algorithms that make finding qualified candidates simple, efficient, and intuitive. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. With me in airlines, I wonder if there's asbestos they put in the in, the, in my blanket now. Should we just make this the, the beginning of the, the episode? Perfect. <laughs> good. All right. We'll just we'll just jump right into it. This yeah. is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Uh, that is me, the guy you were laughing behind me is Jason Hershorn. Hello. We're talking about naps and Chinese food and Italian food. I think that's going to be kind of the gist and the vibe of this podcast. They are Jewish ambient. So if you don't like this, the vibe you're hearing, bail out now. But but don't don't go yet. Let me tell you more about what's happening. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. You knew that probably. You also know that I'm about to ask you to tell someone else about this show. Thank you. As I said, back here with Jason Hirshhorn, a two-timer at Recode Media, a very am. select group. In all fairness, the first ever interview was too short. I think it was only three hours. We, we clocked in at an hour. I literally ran out of the room. You were still talking. Yep. You would have gone for another hour. So you were you were unnecessary, hour. honestly. I, I could have just gone on. And then then you told me, oh, that was great. I'm going to do my own podcast series. Yeah. That was, what, a year and a half ago? Yeah, a little life got in the way, but I am working on it now. I have three formats I'm working on, and I'm, I'm actually excited, and I've learned a lot by listening to you. I got to say, I was excited that you were going to get in the podcast business. A little worried because you're a pretty good talker. No, but you're smart. I just I got the one for the morons. You get the dummy guy. But yeah. also, you're a good talker. Thank I'm you. I'm wondering how you'd be as a listener. We'll see. Um, well, oh, there's guests on the show. It's <laughs> <laughs> the Jason monologue. Yeah. Um, as I said, Jason's been on before. We covered a lot of ground in Jason's life. I don't think we got to everything. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about that I don't think we really touched on nearly enough uh, the first time around is the media landscape. Um, again, we can do in Jason's entire bio. We've already done it for an hour. The post-apocalyptic so. media landscape. Jason has spent a lot of time in and out of big media companies. Yep. Um, a lot of insight into how these things work, how they don't work, um, and what's going to come down the pike. And I want to talk to you about all of that. Sure. I'll stop going through your bio. But in particular, you spent a lot of time with two of the big media moguls of today who are sort of on their way out, uh, the Redstones and the Murdochs. And sure. I'm curious uh, about sort of how you think those things are going to go. Let's let's start with the Redstones. You were at uh, MTV early. I sold my company to MTV in March of 2000, and I left uh, at the end of 2006. Right. So we talked about how you got there. We didn't really talk about what happened when you were there. And yep. one of the big things that happened when you were there, and this is covered extensively in Keech Hagee's book, which we had Keech on earlier this year. She's yep. really great, too. Talk about the Redstones was you were advocating, hey, there's this thing called YouTube. We should go buy it. Yep. Didn't buy it. Um, I, I can't remember if I said buy it, but I said you should absolutely not sue it. Um, I think the, the the intrinsic problem with MTV Networks and Viacom at the time was this was a business that was set up to tell the youth of trends to be the cool factor in their lives. Right. And just, and just to set the context, this is 2005-ish. 
Yeah, that was towards the end of my, I guess, 2004, 2005-ish. Um, it was around the time of Lazy Sunday. Right, so the internet is here. It's firmly established. We get that it's a thing. Yep. There had been the boom. Then there was the bust. There was a lot of reticence to sort of spend money again on yep. digital media. We had bought iFilm, which was at the time the biggest video site on the internet. Because they didn't buy MySpace. But yep. people were still thinking, all right, the internet's a thing, but it's not really a business. And if you're the TV guys, we're still worthy action. I actually think there was actually a, a bit of happiness that the internet had faltered in the early 2000s and the TV people yeah, could be, TV, let's get back to work. happened in magazines, lots yeah. of places like, whew, look, yeah. they don't have to worry look about that anymore. Look at these idiots, they wasted all that money. And, and by the way, because you could feel smart if you were a traditional media guy, because you saw these guys burn enormous amounts of cash sure. in businesses that made no sense, and it turns out you were right. Yeah. But then you were yeah. wrong. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on the timeline. But at the time, I think my whole point was, we need to be a platform for where the youth who are our audience were going to tell each other what was cool, be the platform that enabled that. And I don't think that the executives could ever let go of the fact that they weren't going to be the trendsetters. Then you have um, YouTube come, come about really from, you know, obviously through user-generated content, but there was a moment where they, there was a clip from NBC, the newly digital shorts, Lazy Sunday. Um, it was on there, and you saw YouTube's uh, traffic skyrocket, and that's certainly a compressed version yep. of the story. But, uh, and I think all the media companies started calling me for advice, even at, at MTV, saying, should we sue? And I said, no, take some equity, get a seat at the table. And what was fascinating at the time was that the company, you had a legal department who wanted to sue these companies, and then you had the promotional departments that were putting content up on yeah. YouTube. And this is all spelled out actually in legal documents. Yeah, uh, yeah because, exactly. Because, because the ensuing lawsuit, you can literally see the marketing group is sending up stuff, the, the legal guys are trying to sue this stuff. Yeah, and you have a CEO who took over from Tom Freston, who was a vision guy, and, and that was Philippe Dauman. I wasn't there for that, but obviously knowing a lot of people in the company, here's someone who doesn't have vision for the company. He's a lawyer. You set up things through litigation. And the idea was to go after them. And for me, if you get over the fact that there was a copyright violation, yes, it was. You're in the newfound world where no one ever even knew in the media business that you would have to have rights for everything, meaning things would just show up. You'd take it off your screen and you'd, you'd, you'd rip it and put it up on YouTube. How could you look at it from another vantage point that it could work for you? Now, the record labels were very litigious. Um, Zach Horowitz, I think, was a revenue center uh, in the legal department at at Universal. Is the old lawyer? For, uh, the uh, old, for Universal, the, you know, yeah. the old lawyers. Um, and I think what MTV Networks and the other media companies should have done was what you what the labels did, which was take an equity stake in YouTube for all the trouble. And even at one point, and I believe this is documented in the books, David Unn, who was running content for Google at the time, I think he was going to make a settlement with a bunch of the media companies. It may have been even in the five hundred million per range. And I think Dowman still said, "Go screw yourself." So, so, but to rewind it back, let's let's say Viacom pays attention to your advice. Yep. And not only doesn't sue them, but but buys YouTube or any of the big media companies or takes buys a piece, YouTube. Yeah. What happens to that company's trajectory? Because, as you said, the labels had had, had managed to extract equity deals right as as the sale was going on, but YouTube grew in part because it was kind of not very regulated. I think it would have been a disaster had a major media company bought. So YouTube. it couldn't it couldn't have worked. I don't think it would have worked given what I know of Viacom at the time. The idea probably would have been. How do we have a kids network on, on uh -huh. YouTube for Nickelodeon? And how's the music thing gets rebranded MTV? There's this idea that when you have these media companies of scale that you need to do more of the same thing and you need to continually extend your brand. I think companies like Viacom at the time had forgotten what it was like to have a sub $100 million project 
and to have a new brand. And when you're dealing with a company like that, if you remember, I launched a music service called Urge with my team. And the big fight at, at the end of my career at, uh, at uh, MTV Networks was, why is it named MTV? Why isn't it named VH1? Why is it named Urge? And my idea was that music is encompassing all these genres, and that's not what those brands stand for. But when you're dealing with a company that's so brand-centric, to introduce a new brand that's smaller than the other ones um, is, is something they don't want, but they also want their brand on the new thing. So I think they would have smothered it. And I also think there's this idea in media companies at the time and probably still when you make an acquisition like that, it has to be accretive in three years or some ridiculous number. You have to convince shareholders that it's going to be worth their while, which is a reasonable yep. argument to make. But but you're saying the, the pressure to turn that into a profit center. It is unreasonable. A CEO that does not stand up to the street and ultimately explain to shareholders that this is going to need an incubation period, that we don't know what this is and we're going to figure it out, that's the genius of Facebook and YouTube and other things, which is they were given time to figure it out and grow. And they're held to a different standard. Held well, to right? a different standard. But that this is, is what the, This is what the studio guys would be screaming about with Netflix right now. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you wouldn't come to me to learn how to do a Pilates class. Like I'm not, you know, the reality is you're not looking for the street to you're tell you how good, to. Jason. Thank you. Um, it's not Pilates, though. I lifted two, uh, two heroes on the way over here. But um, – my, my big thing is that you're not, I'm not looking for a street to tell me how to run a media company. And right now we'll talk about this. I mean, you need a CEO who's going to go and like, listen, we're rejiggering this company for the future. At the time, Freston said to me, I want 15% of the revenue from digital media within five years. You don't do that unless you upset some people, unless you shiv some of your current partners, and unless you can explain to the street that we need the time. And I think right now the compensation is not set up in such a way where you're still managing quarter to quarter, you're managing stock price, and therefore you're going to do short-term things that are going to bring up the revenue, which is going to get you your bonus, but you are going to be screwed in the long term. So I was asking about Viacom, but you're really talking about the way all sort of companies, periods, yeah. let alone media companies are set up. Yeah. And this is something I've... I've and by the way, Freston, in all fairness, gave me the permission to go buy MySpace and, and IGN. We didn't get them, right. but he was willing to take Rupert the bet. Rupert came in and took it. Yep. Um, but I was talking to Keach about this and, and other guests as well. There really is an example of a big media company that has figured out the internet, that has managed to buy major assets and make them into something bigger. The best you can say right now, there's companies like Fox sort of set itself up and then sold. Disney is at least making a bet, uh, spending a lot of money on digital. You they both whether did it's working. good things, but they should have been bigger. And they're later. And the traditional things that they did were what hurt those investments. So, But realistically, like you're saying, look, these, these companies are constitutionally incapable of dealing with a new threat, which is the internet. Which a is friend said media. to me the other day, who's a very prominent um, media and technology executives, that the, the, it ultimately comes down to DNA. And if they can't change the DNA of a company, I don't care what's on their strategy deck, on what they will acquire or the people they'll get to work there, they will eventually fail. And I think you're starting to see some changes. But even with Disney, man, they're late. Now, they happen to have the IP to make up for that. And I think that they'll be one of the main players. But the reality is that this strategy that we presented in some of our pieces at Redef or the stuff that you and I have talked about for over a decade, this isn't new stuff. But this is, these were people who were looking at short money versus long-term money. And also, you have a DNA problem inside the media business, which is, um, you know, direct-to-consumer was never a thing. There were always middlemen. And now you need to set up a company that's completely about going to direct-to-the-consumer. The flip side, right, is you've got Amazon, Netflix, Apple, on down the line, all spending increasing amounts of money 
to buy slash make TV shows and movies, the thing the Hollywood guys know how to do, there's a weird disconnect, right? The stuff they make is kind of more valuable than ever. Their companies are worth maybe less than ever. Yep. Well, a couple of things. this one out? Yeah, a couple of things. Well, the advantage that a Netflix and Amazon and an Apple have is they're not in the content business to be in the content business. They're in the content business for some greater well, objective. Netflix is in the content business. Well, yes, I, 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 I take that back. They're, they're unique. Let me actually start with Netflix, to a good point. Netflix, everyone misunderstood what Netflix was doing. When they first came out, they're licensing things. I yep. will tell you that I was brought into a media company after I left Viacom to ask me some opinions about how to explain strategy to the street. Their head of cable distribution said to me, we're going to push off one of the cable deals because this Netflix is offering us $70 million and they're not going to be around in a couple of years. I remember one of the guys from the networks laughing about the deal he'd made. He's, he, I remember the very, very He's he said, morons. He said, he said they have to choke on this stuff we're giving them. Yeah. And the difference is, other than uh, traditional media executives, is that Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos would never sit there and argue back, meaning they'd take all the crap they'd take from people, they'd do it in a smile, but the reality is this was post-2008, the media companies needed that money to replace where advertising was, you know, in a, in a slump, and they were having some of their carriage deals renewed, but they would push back. So Netflix was also misunderstood in terms of they would see what they're spending on a show when they went in there, and they'd say, oh, my God, no network spends on that. If Netflix is going to spend $8 billion on content, I believe that's $4 billion less than Charter spends. They were spending to be the video experience, and this is the greatest land grab in the history of media ever. And it happened because those guys are brilliant, and they ultimately figured out to make great shows, and they did like any other media business, yep. which is they started out curating other people's stuff. But really, they also succeeded because of the laziness and this, you know, silly laughter out of the people that were licensing stuff from them. Yeah, they thought Netflix was the sucker at the table. Yeah. Right, from the, the poker metaphor. This is the dumb money. We're used to dumb money. This is the new dumb money. Yeah. We always have people this is who, Matt Schuster or who want to like come this. in yeah. here and buy our stuff and great, and you want to hang out with Starlet's great. Oh, you don't sure. want to hang out with Starlet's? Whatever. Yeah, we'll I'll put you at the stuff. table with Brad Pitt, and you know, yeah. I'll get $100 million here from you. There you go. Yeah. Enjoy. So that's, that's the Netflix story, and their execution has been fantastic. Their buildup on original content, which has been high, medium, and low, Netflix originals mean something. They changed the way the, the media business worked in terms of release velocity, the cadence of their programming. Um, and frankly, as an operating system, we just wrote this piece on, on Netflix misunderstandings on Redef, Matt Ball did, and talked about the importance of product and technology. And if you think about it, I still like TV. I like channel surfing. Now you have rollovers on Netflix. On Amazon, you could see what songs playing or, and what actors in the scene. Those were innovations that TV weren't making. So that's a big deal. In terms of Disney, um, you know, I actually think that they're going to have a shot at this kind of stuff, but they're not a product and technology company. Um, you know, they have ML BAM. You could argue whether that was a good purchase or not. But how many years away are they from launching their service? 29, late 2019. And they're also doing it with IP in many cases, which is 30 years old. P Pixar, Star Wars, yep. Marvel. And, and we're seeing a little— well, um, let, me, let me pull yep. you up big picture sure. again. So, so the, again, back to what I was saying. So yep. you've, you've got all these guys with really deep pockets saying we now want to buy content. Yeah, sorry. So and and yep. we're going to pay much more than we ever have. Yep. And, and we've explained why Netflix is in a different group. Yep. But you would think that the Disneys and the Foxes and even the Viacoms and the MGM where you run the board, anyone who knows how to make TV, because it turns out you can't just make a TV show. It's, yep. takes, it's, takes it's work. Hard. When Netflix got into TV, they 
bought it from existing studios, right? Yep. Um, you would think these guys would be more valuable than ever. Instead, they're they're consolidating, they're dwindling, they're seeing their market power going away. They are very afraid of Facebook and Amazon and Google and Apple really getting into the content business. Listen, I forget what the statistics was, but you look at the film business, while revenue may be up, ultimately attendance down. The ticket yep. prices are higher. Um, I think they're going down because they were – I'll give you an example at MGM. So when I was on the board, our first three shows that we did in direct uh, – sorry, in uh, Inscripted were Fargo, Handmaid's Tale, and Vikings. MGM, best known for being movie studio. Movie studio with a catalog. Right. And uh, they, James Bond famously is, yep. is the main asset and uh, then eventually got into TV. Yeah, bought Mark Burnett's company and, and decides to go into Scripted as well. Gets a great – a couple of great executives. The three first shows they put out are conversation shows. Fargo, uh, Handmaid's Tale, and Vikings. However, that goes to Hulu, it goes to uh, uh, FX, and it goes to History Channel. So someone like me who sits there and, and understands what's going on in the media landscape, why aren't we holding back that stuff for our own service? Thus the purchase of Epics, uh, which is still a, a nascent you know, movie channel, but they this need was, to— This was Viacom's version of Showtime. Viacom, Lionsgate, and MGM, yeah. and then MGM consolidated the ownership. I think you're seeing that because ultimately they are on— uh, this licensing, you know, uh, phenomenon, they took short money, someone else's business got built up from it, and their businesses are shrinking. The other thing is you see even companies like HBO who still don't adhere to the new um, ways in which you listen. You can't – ways in which you watch. There's no binging. There's no downloading. So I still think that we are – the reason that a Netflix or an Amazon or an Apple has an advantage is because they have no – uh, traditional relationships. They don't have to worry about an MVPD. They don't have to worry about advertising, even though they're going into that area. Amazon can spend what they want to spend because, what is it, a third of America is on Prime? That's a massive business. And we think Apple, I don't know if they've announced it yet, but we put out a piece on this. They're going to do their own version of Prime. They'll tie hardware, warranty, and all the services together. To be a standalone media service, even for a Netflix, is going to be a hard thing in the future. But they're the ones that made the land grab. And what's their number now? Are they at 120 million subs or something like yep. that globally? I mean, think about that. That is remarkable. And they've done it with unique things like going into other countries with their own content. They're putting content from foreign countries and not even – it's not necessarily about the overdub. Some of their best shows on Netflix right now are foreign-produced um, – Let me ask you the same India, question. Germany, all that kind of stuff. Another way, yep. which is – if all these guys want to get into content, yep. they want to spend lots of money, yep. at a minimum, you would think, and this was the conventional wisdom up until very recently, the MGMs, the Viacoms, the Sonys of the world, they're all going to get bought because the fastest way for Apple to get in the business, instead of just going and buying individual shows, let's buy a studio. Um, why hasn't that happened? If I look at it through the guise of Netflix, I think their way of looking at the world, and I'm not quoting anyone there, is we don't want to clean up any mess. The reality is we want to do things differently. We want to buy Shonda Rhimes. We don't want to buy Disney. We don't want to buy Disney. They have the money. They're giving the flexibility and freedom to creative talent. And uh, ultimately, if you're taking on a going concern, then you have the going concerns problems. You have the, overhead. Yeah. You've got bad deals they made. You would think a company like that would buy an Endemol or buy, hey, in order to, you know, the, the, the banker pitch Endemol, would be. Endemol, by the way, is still in the market. Yes. Uh, you know, the pitch would be. If you're going global and you need production, you're going to buy, you know, this kind of production company. You're able to go and get it. I'm not saying that's going to happen. There's always rumors of Google coming around and kicking the tires on, an, uh, on, a, on a Lionsgate or an Amazon looking or you know, rumors of MGM in play. That may still happen because catalog is still important. On a lot of these services, it's still 60% of the viewing is still library film. Yeah, HBO goes out of its way to but put that out. There, and it's not a not invented here syndrome. It's more of 
we don't want to be encumbered by legacy deals and legacy businesses. And can you argue with the way that Netflix has done? I get that, except that you'd think one of them would say, well, we got to jumpstart this. You guys own a catalog of a bunch of stuff. Let's just buy it or flip it around. Amazon went out and bought Whole Foods, which is the definition of legacy business. Is it's all this real estate. Uh, it's long leases, et cetera, plus a really messy business. And they said, well, just buy that. Yeah. to jumpstart our way into the grocery business, which we've been at for a decade without success. Listen, I also say that the DNA of Amazon is not the DNA of a media company. I mean, you have a guy who was a wealth manager and is now the yeah. richest guy in the world and probably the best operator. But again, if Amazon could buy Whole Foods yep. for $13, 14000000000 billion, why haven't they just bought just a don't studio just to speed things up? Well, uh, Amazon. It wouldn't surprise me if Amazon bought CBS. You know, you get access to football. I'm not saying it's not going to be done. Yeah. Um, I think a company like Netflix looks at that and says, we see problems and we could scale faster and do okay on our own. And But I, uh, here's what I will say. It's like a Rube Goldberg. The minute one falls, the whole contraption starts to go. So if Lionsgate gets sold, let's say to Google, there's no way that MGM doesn't go into play because everyone's going to start running for catalog. I, you, you look at what you know Apple's done. They hired these two Sony guys. They have the money to get the executives. They have the money to get the talent. And they don't need the infrastructure of a studio. Um, that's fine for them. Um, I'm not saying it's not going to go. I think it'll ultimately be whoever takes the first plunge and buys. That, that That's when media gets consolidated. Yeah, a bunch of tech. us thought this would happen the minute the uh, AT&T Time Warner ruling came down. Yeah. Um, hasn't happened. Um, I think you're right. I think once the first deal happens, then we have a I think I think if you look at Viacom— and By the way, the bankers are all peddling this right now anyway. The only difference between the banker presentations is whether it's on 11 by 14 or, you know, 12 by whatever. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, they're all the same charts. I think if you look at a Viacom, for example, if you're looking at M&A, um, the reason for the, for the com combination, which doesn't make sense necessarily strategically to stay alive, is that CBS is probably an easier business to sell on its own. Viacom with the cable networks um, are harder, but the combined gives you the leverage of retrans, um, but it also allows you to buy MTV networks because you have to get to CBS. Right. This is the logic that the chair rights one doesn't want to say out loud. And I don't I think she believes but doesn't want to say out loud, right? I, which I is, don't work which there is anymore. I want to sell MTV. <laughs> I can't sell MTV on its own. Or the maybe the maybe the value of CBS goes down a little bit if I smash it together with MTV, but MTV's value goes up enough to cover it. It makes a lot of sense for her in all, you know, disclosure, she's one of the Redef investors and I know her well, but I don't have any inside information on a Viacom, but the cable business is challenged. The MTV brand is not where it used to be. Uh, Nickelodeon looking for a senior executive right now to run the company, um, whereas CBS, you know, Leslie has had the one of the probably the greatest track record in the history of programming. So they have solid shows, and then they also have the NFL, which is a must-have. I knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to get 21 minutes into this, and yeah. I would say we got to take a break. So let's well, do that right no now. No breaks. What are you doing? There's, we, we monetize this, Jason. Oh my god, it's a business. Uh, what if I give you 100 dollars? We keep going. Where's the money? All right, cool. That's right on the table. Let's go. Uh, we'll be right back. Yep. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. Simply Safe Home Security is ready for anything that gets thrown at it. The storm takes out your power. Simply Safe is ready. An intruder cuts your phone line. Simply Safe is ready. If they destroy your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. Sure, maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst case scenario. Wouldn't you like to be ready? That's what makes Simply Safe's home security system so great. It is always ready. Simply Safe could cost an arm and a leg, but it does not. Instead, they just charge you what's fair. You get 24-7 professional security monitoring for just $14.99 a month. 
no contracts, no hidden fees. You can go check it out at simplysafe.com slash media today. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash media to protect your home and family today. Simplysafe.com slash media. We're back with Jason, who has not shown me a $100 bill. Hold on, I'm putting it on the table right now. I'll, uh, listen, I'll give you 300 for three hours. This is cheap therapy I need, I need for to get you. a wallet. I see a 50 there. All right, we'll there keep we going. Go. We're going to skip the second ad break. <laughs> um, what, what, what I thought we were going to do is talk about media moguls. Um, we can still do that. But did, did you have much access to, to Sumner Redstone during your Viacom time? I didn't. I'll tell you some funny stories. That probably, I mean, that probably is a good thing for you, I right? Think, I think, you know, listen, I the folklore about Sumner is folklore to me, though I know real stories, and I don't want to make a comment on it. I know... I remember Judy McGrath when I became um, head of digital worldwide. MTV boss. Yeah, Judy McGrath who ran MTV Networks, who's you know my mentor and one of my closest friends. I remember standing outside of her office. She was waving me in, and uh, and Sumner was in there. She's like, "You got to come in here with me." And this is my first interaction with Sumner. Because Early Jason, 70s. Yeah, he was up there. Yeah, you know, definitely went to high school with Moses or something like that. And um, he looks at me and he goes, "Jason, you ever been to China?" I said, no, Sumner, I haven't been to China. He goes, not one restaurant better than Shun Li there. Shun Li was his favorite Chinese restaurant on the West Side. That was my first interaction with Sumner. Another interaction was, I remember um, every once in a while, I used to get to get a ride on the plane back, uh, and I would talk strategy with Tom. I remember we landed at Teterboro, and uh, we all got off the plane, and Sumner didn't get off the plane. It starts to drive away, and I said, Tom, what's he doing? He goes, oh, he likes to park over there and watch the Yankees game. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my interactions. In all honesty, like, he's the mogul. He built that company. But, like, Tom Freston and Leslie ran the company. Yep. Like, you didn't hear from Summer on a daily basis. You may have heard him on earnings calls, but it was the division heads ran that company. But he famously was sitting there watching the ticker, and if the stock moved down X number of points or half a point, he'd be on the phone with them. I'm sure there was a Hudsucker proxy type thing going on there. I didn't have access to that. Um, certainly, that's not the way that Tom would want to run a company. Um, and you saw what happened with that. But, um, you know, a lot of the stuff I heard was was secondhand. And he wasn't, even with Mel, when Mel Carmazin was running Viacom, yeah, Sumner would come to the senior executive budget meetings with us. But it was Mel's company. He ran that company day to day. This is where I'm going to stop again and promote Kichagi's book. Yeah, um, it's a good book. King of Content, very good. But by the way, speaking of promotion, uh, tell people who don't know, which again, a very, very limited number, limited percentage of these listeners who do not know what Redef is. Redef is a company I call the Interest Remix Company. It's a bunch of newsletters we put out on different areas like uh, media and music. And every day I write a forward, um, as does Matty Karras on music, and we're coming out with or relaunching some of those publications called The Rant and the Rave. And we talk about something personal or something in business, and we give it pop culture context, and then we pick 20 items for you to read or listen to or watch every day. It's free for now. It's free for now, l- largely because I had a lot of life dust that I had to get by, but we're going to go into subscription, and you know, you'll know, you see And Peter's incredibly, you were, you were giving away uh, uh, these amazing uh, analysis pieces, many by Matthew Ball, former Amazon guy, now doing something he won't disclose. I'll tell you a very funny thing. So Who we, won't write for me even though I asked him? Oh, that's, that's called loyalty. I mm, fear. Um, and uh, it's a great story. Matthew Ball, who does our uh, Redef publications, uh, he started our originals thing. Um, he walked into my office in New York City when he was 25 years old. I had, he had no appointment with me. And he said, I like your career. I want to know everybody you know, and I want to operate. I want to learn from you. And I've done these things under this nom de plume, which we had been linking to. And I just said to him, like, listen, I'll give you a bunch of money 
and we'll come up with topics together and they need to be data oriented, but narratives about the media business. And three years later, to his credit, he was the head of strategy at Amazon Video and now is about to do something else, which is not announced yet, but is one of the great thinkers in the media business now. And, you know, it's good that I can help him come up with a topic, but Matt's way smarter than me. So, again— And we give those things away for if free. If you like this stuff and yep. you haven't read these things, he's written these really, really deep, insightful pieces, particularly on Netflix and HBO in the last few months. And Disney as well and, and curation. And I'll tell you a funny story about the Disney piece. The Dis he wrote a piece called Disney is a SaaS Business about three years ago. And I got a call from Kevin Mayer at Disney and said, hey, Bob Iger and I would like it's to have— It's a subscription have, business. Um, he doesn't know it's a subscription business, but it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, not yet, but he says— um, We'd love to have lunch with you. And I had known Kevin for a long time, so I, so I have lunch with him and Iger. And Iger, I'm going to paraphrase here, but we're having lunch at Disney, and Iger says, you know, you're an idiot. And, and I'm like, um, why is that, Bob? And he goes, you give away for free what we pay tens of millions of dollars a year from management consultants yeah. for. So thus came in the idea of a subscription and paywall. Okay, but he gave you that advice a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, you know, I sort of had some personal stuff and heart attacks and heart surgeries and time off, which normal people take. And now I'm rebuilding Redef and looking for a CEO, if you know anyone. Uh, I don't. Let's, let's, Is Jim uh, Bankoff looking for a job? Um, Jim listens, so he'll, you'll hear from him. Banky, things don't work out with Fox or Vox. Sorry, Vox, I've got to <laughs> got got look around. Things are working out. Right? I know. I, by the way, I love the, the lights, studio. The lights are still on. Um, so let's go back uh, to mo more mogul talk. We, great Iger story there. Uh, when Bob Iger tells you you're an idiot. He meant it in a listen. loving way, I'm sure. He's yeah. a wonderful guy. Uh, Murdoch. Yep. You know the Murdochs well. I grew you went up, to work for them. You grew up with yeah, I grew James. Yeah, I grew up with James. We went to high school together. I'm still a buddy of mine. And, um, you know, uh, Rupert I worked for when I ran MySpace, and he was very good to me. I obviously have my issues with the the Fox News of today. You which made is, that very clear over the last year or so. Yeah, and it's not indicative of the Rupert that I know, but he seems to be able to separate business from personal politics. Do you, do you, that was one of the questions I had for both Rupert and his sons. Do you think that all of them say, well, there's a product I put out, it's Fox News, or by the way, it's anything else I put out, and there's what I actually believe in my heart of hearts, and one's a business and one's my ideology? I don't want to speak for them, and I think all of them probably look at it differently. Um, I think, you know, I think there are people, and, and this doesn't go just for the Murdoch boys. I think most of the senior executives inside the Fox organization as we stand today before the merger, it's not the partisan issue of Fox News. It's the presentation of lies and propaganda. Um, and not to say that CNN and MSNBC doesn't have their fair share of that. They're nothing. They're nothing. Similar. I'll tell you a funny story. So when I was president of MySpace, I also had a side job. And the side job was the chief product officer of News Corp. And I sat down with Rupert, even back then, this was 2009, and I said, I will not work with Fox News. I won't work with Roger Ailes. Uh, and I, I never met Roger Ailes, but to me, I, I knew what I needed to know. You think about what Fox News was then compared to now, right. all right? It wasn't even in the same crazy house. But I really thought then, I, I grew up, you know, on Steven Spielberg movies and Frank Capra movies and knowing about Walter Cronkite. So my idea of the media and journalism is a very lofty idea, even though we may fail at it every once in a while. And I thought that what they were doing was poisoning the fabric of the country. And, and by the way, when I have problems with things like the news feed on Facebook or on Twitter, why is news any different than that? I mean, you know, when, when you're on CNN, I'm sure you hear in your ear, like, you know, go more aggressive, you know, drop the bomb. They're looking for it to be a boxing match. And we're at a really tough time in this country. And having spent a lot of personal time with Rupert, during my tenure there, he's a curious guy. He's an open-minded guy. He's not a prejudiced guy. And I just don't see him 
in Fox News, and yet it's probably one of the greatest business decisions in the history of television, but we've gone beyond just a shareholder thing now. And by all accounts, that's his product, right? I mean, for one thing, he's not selling it to Disney. He's keeping it. It's yeah. incredibly powerful. He uses it as a tool, um, yeah. direct access to Donald Trump. With sure. Um, and his hands are all, are all over it in terms of the actual programming now, especially in this post-Ales. And yeah. I mean, if I, if I play that stuff out, it wouldn't surprise me if Fox News, even as a separate organization, gets sold. It would scare the living daylights out of me if it got sold to a Sinclair or something like that. And also on the Disney front, if you're looking at Succession, you know, I, I thought, not Succession, the television yeah. show, but Succession. Um, the minute that I heard that the Murdochs were going to sell, it was a rumor before it was released to the press. If you had given me 37 chances to come up with that answer, I'd been like, you're out of your that mind. That it was going to go to Disney or that they were going to sell it that all? That they would sell it at all. Right. So that's the, that the was idea that Rupert would ever sell that company it was, ever. It was a U-turn, right? Because he was... Acquisitive, 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 wanted to buy Time Warner a yep. couple of years ago. Yep. And then he says, nope, I'm selling. I'm basically, I'm not getting out of media, but I'm selling at least half my business. And the narrative is like the Bucus narrative at Time Warner, which is they see, these guys see the top, they're getting their top dollar. Rupert, you know, t- toys around with Comcast, which was always been an, you know, an adversary, gets an extra $20 billion, sells it to Disney. The Rupert that I know has played this five to ten steps down the road. And I don't know exactly what their share of Disney is going to be or how their board seats are going to be, but a Murdoch-controlled Disney in the future is not science you fiction. You think it is significant that he is taking stock and is going to have significant equity and voting power in, in, the, in the new Disney-Fox combination? I think it's, it's, it's just a Monday for Rupert. Yes, it's significant, but that's the way he thinks. You guys like Rupert, Charlie Ergen, John Malone, these are the smartest guys I've ever met. My so you don't life. believe he is leaving the media business? I mean, clearly he's holding on to some assets anyway, but you think you think he is still a player? I have no—first well, of all, I think it's a good bet. If you're going to bet on a media company, you bet on Disney. Yeah. All right, for any issues they may have, I want to be in that kind of trouble. Uh, they have the great assets, great IP. Um, but I still cannot swallow that Rupert's exiting the business and— and I ultimately, I, I don't have any information, but I, if you came to me in two years and remember that there's going to be a lot of Fox executives over there. If a Fox yep. executive ends up running um, Disney, I would not be shocked. And then Rupert is back in Disney. Because there's another narrative that says, well, forget the top part. The part is you're building this business. You're of a certain age. You're looking at your kids. We're supposed to run the business for you. And maybe you don't get along. Maybe they don't really have their heart set on running this business. You go, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not going to pass this business along to you guys. Or by the way, if they don't want to take over the business because they can see the challenges for themselves or whatever reason they don't want to run it, fuck it, let's sell it. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't think Rupert looks at life that way. Um, I still think he is as sprite as any 35-year-old in many ways, at least mentally. Um, you know, maybe I can beat him in a race now. But when's, the last time, when's the last time you saw him? I haven't seen him in a couple of years. I mean, to be honest with you, the stuff that's going on at Fox News has hurt my sense of him. Um, so you can't disconnect between the business and the product? Well, listen, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur most of my life. When people say to me it's business, not personal, I'm like, what, are you out of your mind? My money's in there. I live this 18 hours a day. I, I, could under, I could separate the art from the artist mostly, but I can't separate... If you know that you're doing something that is hurtful, um, and I believe that these guys have to know. I mean, and again, this isn't about my politics as much as it's about truth. Uh, that really hurts me. And I'm, I'm not letting an MSNBC or a CNN off the hook, but certainly that Fox News is my Pavlovian dog. You know, yeah, but, it really but does let's, hurt let's, Again, let's be clear. CNN and MSNBC are not the 
left version of, of Fox News. It's, Fox News is its own product. It's its own power, and it's not, a, it's not being used for good. It's, I don't think it's being used for good. I think it's, you know, I certainly think that they are largely responsible for Trump, you know, helping Trump to get into office. And you'll see rulings and other things of that nature that seem to be helping Rupert. You know, whether or not that's directly connected, that's the way that Donald Trump works. I mean, I can't even imagine Donald remember Trump. He, remember when he's being outflanked by Steve Bannon and Breitbart? Was, uh, you mean was, Rupert? Yeah, that was the conventional wisdom two years ago. Well, listen, I, I, I think there was always a fear in Fox News that if you think of the genius of Fox News, it was having an outlet for that audience. It wasn't that crazy in the beginning. But remember that a campaign manager ran a television network. That in itself is freaking scary to me. Yep. Um, and, and if you go into the future, this idea that someone is going to outfox Fox and become even more radical. I'm a middle guy. I like the middle. The middle doesn't get me everything I want, but it gets me peace. It gets me understanding. So I think, I think the ban and the Breitbart stuff is way out there. But if they sold Fox News and it went to a place like Sinclair or, or Sinclair decided to invest in a place like a Breitbart, those are the things that are going to happen. And, you know, when you and I were younger, I'm older than you, and I would go see a Mike Tyson fight, and I'd say, Mike Tyson's the most vicious fighter I've ever seen. No one will ever be able to beat him. He's the most vicious fighter that ever lived. And then five years later, there's a guy that's more vicious than him. So if I thought that Fox News was bad when it wasn't as bad, and now it's what it is now, the right of Fox News scares the living daylights out of me. When, when the Disney-Fox deal was first announced, and you said you knew about it before it was announced, I got to talk to you more often. Uh, well, the rumors about one, it. Right? One yeah, of the yeah. theories was, and, and floated was that, that James Murdoch was going to go to Disney uh, That's who I was rooting he for, was, obviously. He was going to – Bob Iger didn't have a successor. James would be the likely number number two slash successor. Uh, and then at some point, James basically said, nope, I'm not. W what happened there? I, I mean, I don't want to uh, betray any confidences. I would – I was just, surprised. Just us talk. Uh, yeah, just us. <laughs> um, and the sound guy. Um, but – I, I, listen, there's, there's me who sees a friend that I've been friends with since I'm 12 years old and I want him to be successful. Um, I don't know what he wanted. Um, I was surprised he was the heir apparent. It was a confusing time over there. I mean, to be honest with you, like Rupert never left a lot. Chase was sort of still, Chase Carey was sort of still around when, when they were there. James gets the job a, uh, a few years after what happened in the UK with the, with the, um, hacking. you know, the hacking scandal. I knew that he would get the job eventually in my mind, but he got it sooner than I thought. And I, I know James to be one of the smartest guys in media. He understands the media business super well. His experience at Sky with different kinds of digital products and ARPU are very, very germane to a, a direct-to-consumer business. And then Lachlan came back into the fold. It's a confusing thing. To me, it means something that a guy who might have been able to run Disney, um, which in under a lot of scenarios is going to be one of the most powerful media companies yeah. ever – um, has decided not to, and we don't even know if he's going to be in media at some point in the near future. Well, it's been rumored that James is going to do something on the VC front. He's sure, a, but VC, when, you, when, you, when you're a billionaire, VC yeah. just means you're just going to write Well, you also have to understand the person. You have a person that is literally one of the most curious people on earth, sits on the board of Tesla. And by the way, has spent his entire life working for his dad to, yeah. to, to yeah. have this job. So if you look at when Anthony Bourdain died, who I was a huge fan of, you see these things on social media where people say, I don't understand. He got to travel the world and he had a beautiful girlfriend and he had the greatest life. We don't know what people want. If you're James Murdoch and you grew up in that and you're always compared to your father and no matter how smart you may be a captain of industry anywhere else, some cases you're still Rupert's son. Maybe James thought it's time for me to do my own thing. I've done very well here. Look at the exit here. I mean, even the exit after the deal announcement was, yep. was tremendous. 
And now I'm going to do some things. Money's not the issue. If you're a normal person, you say, wow, I have the opportunity to do whatever I want, free from, from my, my being compared to my dad. Makes a lot of sense. I just I can't imagine what it's actually like to be inside that head, which is one of the reasons I think I'm one of the few people who was really into succession. Yeah, I'll say this. You know, Now we're talking about being I think show. when we look at other people's lives, it's very one-dimensional. Yeah. When we look at our enemies, it's very one-dimensional. When that's what you grew up in and that's all you know, and James is someone who at 20-some-odd had a record label. He collects sneakers. He, you know, loves to travel. He's into biking. Like, we don't—the average public doesn't know what he wants to do. And, and by the way, that's more of the same. I, in a smaller way in my career, I got named to a huge job at, at MTV Networks, was on track to be a guy that may run Viacom, and I decided to quit to go to Slingbox. Also collect sneakers. Um, and also collect sneakers. Matchbox cars. Um, this is the through line. And I had no—I I didn't, I didn't think about it for two seconds— but everyone said, oh, my God, you're ruining your career. That's what other people want. There is no rule on how you get things done. And i got to tell you something. Slingbox was the most fun I ever had in my life. I love underdog fights. I like new technologies. Maybe that's what James is thinking. Who knows? I'm going to get here in one. I'm going to get him in one day when the deal is done. Let's see if I can get and him to be safe. remotely can. I don't know. I think, I think he's going to be wound pretty tight for a while. I have to say, you know, I, I think a lot of people get him wrong. He's got a tremendous sense of humor. He's a lot of fun. Um, and again, you know, you come with a lot of baggage when you're, when you're Rupert Murdoch's son, and I don't think that there's been a fair representation of him in the media, but, you know, not I will. I will extend the invitation for him to come represent himself. Sure. Fairly. Well, maybe if there's a sneaker episode, you'll get him in here. I'm still waiting for your money, so which means we're going to take a, one more quick It's on break. the table. Hey, listeners. I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. Listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice. Is that the Enron logo? Back here with Jason Hirschhorn explaining that he's looking at the Eater logo. Eater, one of the premier brands at Vox Media. I did not mean to confuse it with Enron. I apologize. And I like no Eater. fraud here. Eater's a great brand. Love Man it. is doing a great job. Absolutely love it. We're big fans. Um, speaking of Eater, website, digital media, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you here besides to tell old mogul stories is to talk about what's happening today. We talked about it at the beginning with Silicon Valley versus L.A. versus New York. You're in L.A. most of the time. Um, you're seeing the Valley guys now show up all the time making deals. You're watching Apple make deals. We're not quite sure what they're doing. Yep. How do you gauge their chance for success? Netflix is already very successful. Apple. Everyone, every, everyone, Apple, but all the other, all, everyone else who's trying to get into media who hasn't fully gone there yet. Even Amazon, spending a lot of money, kind of did a reboot in the last year. Yeah, listen, I think Amazon's first swing was a pretty great swing. I can't speak to what went on management-wise there or the success that was comparative, but some of their early shows were good shows. Um, I'd actually give them a better mark on early than I gave Netflix when they first started doing that originals. Listen, they have a tremendous amount of engagement with their audience in multiple ways. I bet on all these companies to do well. Um, Part of it is when, when an Apple gets into the business, then you talk to all the traditional TV people and like, oh, these guys are crazy. I can't believe they're signing up Spielberg and Oprah. There's always a reason to crap on them. Right. The, the, the standard critique now is they're in the press release business. All they're doing is putting out press releases. Yeah, I mean, which is very un-Apple. 
um, from the past, but the reality, I, I looked at some lineup of here's the announcements yeah. of the shows. Listen, I, I guess someone in their place had to decide, like, listen, we just want you to know there's momentum in here, but it takes a long time of a lead time to get a show going. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jeffrey Katzenberg's new TV or whether you're a new streaming service. You have a time to build out your service and get your content. Apple will license like everybody else, and they'll start to pepper these things in. Um, I think they'll do okay. And remember that this is you – know, imagine, what is it going to be, 70 bucks a month maybe? You think ultimately the Apple Play is a, is a, is a big subscription service where I get music, video, Apple Care, whatever else they can throw in there. And the new phone. I, Matt Ball wrote a piece, which we called Apple Prime. That was his take on it, whether – whether we, I think we're directionally correct. Yeah. And there's been some leaks around it, but the idea would be that instead of buying a new phone every time you get the phone when it comes out, you'd have your extended warranty in your Apple Care, you'd get, um, you know, iTunes, you'd get whatever, you know, maybe App Store stuff. That's the way that it's going. And remember that the hardware is still so significantly great that that keeps you in the ecosystem. Does the fact that Apple missed really badly uh, a year and a half ago when they rolled out two new shows, a, a reality show and, and a spinoff of the James Corden show, should that indicate something in terms of how they're going to perform this time out or is that just look you to f in order to succeed you got to fail etc you know it was on the 30 for 30 documentary i think christian leitner i'm not gonna paraphrase him said something about you know the duke ba famous duke basketball player like people remember the wins that everybody had these you know you name me five of the first netflix shows lily hammer uh, lily eh, not that bad yeah. i like little steven but but actually um, netflix had a great had a great hit ratio at the beginning yeah i'm saying when you have orange is the new black when you've got peaky blinders when you've got all those things i don't remember any of that kind of crap so what's the hit ratio on a television network even the stuff that gets canceled off of hbo which is pretty good um would be better on any other my network. thought is if my thought is only that if you were a it's one thing to fail. It's another thing to go, here are our first two shows. I agree with and you. And they're bad TV yeah. shows and to not have someone in your organization to go, no, 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 don't don't. I think out. sometimes, and again, this is just me um, pontificating without fact. My take as being a media observer, and I don't know the Apple people well, is they get taken in by Svengali sometime. So they get the big guy who does and does not work for the company and tells them this is going to be the good thing and they'll do their version of whatever. If it was me, that would not have been my calling card. My calling card would have been something would be as, as close to my version of Game of Thrones or my version of a Silicon Valley so right. that I and could so set the, the example. Now they're going the other way, which is, all right, we're going to hire two other guys who are well-regarded, and they're going to come out with dozens of shows. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems, and you've been in this, covering this business for so many years, you know, it's fascinating when YouTube comes in the business and says, TV's over, TV's shit, no one cares about TV. Then they, they hire everybody from TV. They want the TV ad dollars. They want the TV creators, and they want the TV operating system. When it comes time to make money, the media guys haven't been so stupid after all. And while it may, the comps may not be what it is, everyone is signing up now because content is a differentiator. And therefore, you can't just load your system in with catalog. You have to have some signature shows. And as we've proven... The marketing for your service is the show. It's not just putting up, you know, uh, performance ads or saying join Netflix on TV for $9.99. When you have Peaky Blinders, when you have the new season of Stranger Things, when you have an Amanda Knox documentary, that's why people join. And the genius of Ted Sarandos and those guys has been, think about November traditionally. You have holiday programming, some sports, you go into the new year, TV's off the air essentially, and some movie openings. The first week in November, I remember, a couple of years ago, they're hitting you with the new Black Mirror, Stranger yeah. Things, the Amanda Knox documentary. I love it. I love that they put stuff out during uh, holiday weekends. 
Correct. Right? Which networks go dark, yeah. essentially, right? That's when you put the Jerry Lewis telethon on and they go, no, no, here's a hot new show from us, yeah. which we know you're going to watch because we know you're sitting around. You can't stand your relatives. Yep. Or, or you've already had your, your, your picnic. Yep. Watch. But think about the difference in businesses there. So a TV network says, we've already, we've already made our numbers for the year advertising-wise. Anything we, and when you over-deliver in advertising, the, the consumer gets it. I mean, the buyer gets yep. it. You don't get anything. And all of a sudden, what they've, what they've proven is churn – to, to fight churn, you keep releasing stuff. The idea after a November that I would ever cancel Netflix unless I went broke is insane because they keep giving me stuff. And even if all of it isn't great, there's three or four shows that I'm talking about. And that is not by mistake. I mean, they're doing it because they're doing the opposite of what the TV business did. Which is basically shut down from December yeah, to They're all in St. Bart's, all of them, while, yeah. while Ted Sarandos is eating their lunch. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it seems pretty simple, but it's pretty genius. And those are the kinds of things that we need to change. Te the, the television or video experience now is great content, content for all of the family. So what, what, what Netflix did, look, look at Netflix. They've systematically gone after children. Matt Ball will tell you he thinks they're cornering the comedy market now. Maybe not at the scale of quality that HBO has had, but they're getting there. Enough. They announced the Bruce Springsteen show, which I just saw. I can't believe... Like, Bruce Springsteen, like, he was, he was literally an HBO guy. Exactly. I mean, Netflix is literally going into all these sectors, and then they're releasing in such a way that you're never letting go. You look at Stars now. Jeff Hirsch, who, who is the CEO of Stars, who has responsibility for these units, and you say David Nevins at Showtime. Two episodes to the end of the series, you introduce a new episode. You introduce a new show, sorry. And that's what keeps churn. They're starting to understand what Netflix has been doing. You got into media via music. You were making websites for, for bands, yep. music labels. And the music business tanked eventually, not because of you. Uh, it was my fault. It was my website, Donaldson. Now, now music is booming again. Valuations are going nuts. You're on the board of a music company, Pandora, which yep. doesn't seem that's really caught the same wave as everybody else. Sure. Um, have we overcorrected on music? Have we, are we overestimating the, the power of the music business? Well, first of all, anything looks good from the bottom. Yep. So uh, I th Matt had uh, written another piece about this. I mean, they'd hit a bottom. It was a lot of mistakes that were brought on by the music business. I don't blame Napster. Napster was a product innovation that was sued. It's no different than the YouTube example. Um, certainly streaming numbers are through the roof. Um, the economics for artists are not. I think that's going to be the next evolution of the media business. Anyone that's telling me that a company like Spotify isn't going to go directly to the artist, I know they've talked about some of these things, or Daniel will say that they're not going to replace the, the, um, you know, the labels. I'll say this. The economics are much better for the artist and for Spotify without a record label in the middle. Record labels are still good at finding artists. They're still good at using their catalog for leverage. I don't know how they're going to do this displacement. And traditionally, record labels have been very vindictive if you move against their right. business. Right. The, 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 the game slash act that – getting a metaphor wrong here. What Spotify is trying to do is do direct deals with a, a certain tier of artists that wouldn't get a major label deal. Yep. That was him turning off the lights. Sure. Um, um, was without that Lucian Grange just yeah, turn off the lights? Without, without going after the acts that would really upset the Lucian Granges of the world. Sure. But but even and I wrote about this and, yeah. and trust I forget me they, what media they, they, they paid attention to it um, and and you've got and, and and so on the one hand Daniel Ek will tell investors this is what we're doing he's, on the other hand he's got to tell Lucian Grange no 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 everything's great labels are great I'm sure it was someone smart like Reed Hastings or Ted Sarandos or someone that said something you start from the bottom of the pyramid and you work your way up if you look at YouTube television you know starting with some of the smaller channels and working their way up if you're a big artist if you're Drake what do you need a label for at this point now. 
This is the perpetual question yeah. that people have been asking for in the music business for years and years and years. And there is always, not a Drake, but uh, Chance the Rapper. More often, it's, it's an artist who's already been big for several years, yep. a radio head, a prince, and yep. they go off without a label. And the label story is they always come back because it turns out we provide services to them and we can talk about the value and how much we're going to pay them and vice and versa. And in many ways, they have been right but, uh, about and, some of it. But there's a, there's a reason that so-and-so still is on a major label. Well, listen, they like the advances. Um, certainly for a label, it's in their interest to re-sign the big artist because that's what you package streaming rights in for, for other artists. Yep. But maybe a Drake says, you know what? I don't want to be in that package, and I want $50 million from every service to have my music. That may seem, you know, it, it's like this thing with, like, LeBron and the other athletes. Like, stick to what you know. Don't bring politics into, uh, into sports. I think all that stuff is nonsense. The reality is you're, you're out for yourself if you're an artist. The label, yes, can have your interests, but they also have their interests, and they're, they're selling you as a catalog together, and you're a big part of that. And you shouldn't be subsidizing the other artists. Do you think for those big artists, the bigger issue is, I would rather have guaranteed money up front. You pay me X amount for this many albums over this many years. Yep. Um, and I, yes, I could make more if I owned the th stuff myself and sold it myself. Ultimately, I could make much more. Do you think it's that, or do you think it's, I don't actually want to do that work? It depends on the artist. I mean, you have artists like Future who... I don't know why he needs a record label, but he's got his own tour. He's got his own clothing line. I mean, they're thinking 360 in a way the labels haven't. I think there are some artists that just want the – they don't want to be business people, which is a mistake, by the way. If you don't understand your business as an artist, you're hurting yourself. And they want that $7 million an album or whatever it's going to be, and then they'll get their streaming royalty. I think it'll be all over the place. I guess my point is that it's more transparent than ever before. And when you're seeing someone that's driving a, a streaming service and they're getting these checks that we've heard of, it's a real issue. And, and the other problem is that the amount of payers is dwindling. You know, there, it's going to be very hard to be an independent music service, even for a Spotify going forward, because the packages that we talked about with Amazon, with Apple, and ultimately Google and other sites, like, it's a, just a greater value for you. How are you going to eke out your living in that? And I do believe that you'll start to see these separate deals, and maybe they're already happening, we don't know where major artists are giving a bigger chunk or a separate chunk uh, of a check. And, and by the way, there's an, even though Irving Azoff and other managers have perfected the art of the second part of the career, or the third part of the career, you see Journey and Def Leppard and other guys selling out stadiums. Still, the Fleetwood Mac farewell tour is yet to end. Um, yes, and with Neil Finn apparently coming in for Lindsey Buckingham and the genius of Irving. Um, they're trying to figure out how to, to get their money when they can get their money, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. Artists and athletes, no matter how rich they get, is, are ultimately can be exploited. And the, the other problem that you have is, like, the streaming services get blamed. So why is it Daniel X's fault at Spotify that the label cut this deal? That's who he has to go to for the music. I think it will help them with brand to do direct deals with artists. They are not getting tagged anymore. You don't see the musicians complain about Spotify. Well, I think that which I, think, I thought would actually ramp up when they went public, when they made so much more money, when Daniel X's net worth skyrocketed from X to Y. You'd think you'd see more artists saying, look, this is it's exactly what I predicted. You're making lots of money. I'm making less. I think Daniel learned probably from the Metallica early thing at Napster. And uh, Daniel learned to talk to artists immediately. I think some of the arguments were disingenuous from some of the artists. Maybe they were looking at um, the sale of their label at the time or wanting to get a little more money out of them and, and making a fight that wasn't a fight. I think Daniel talked to a lot of artists. I think you saw Troy Carter and other people that respected by the artist community come in and work there. Um, 
and it's probably understood that the the culprit may be the label deals. And and Spotify can't change a label deal. They have to do the deal that the label wants to give them. And that's no different from Pandora or anybody else. We're coming up on hour two here. All right, cool. We're going to end it at hour two. Oh, We're, uh, what do you want to tell us about Redef in, in your life? How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Um, you know, uh, heart surgery, as you know, your audience knows, was not a fun thing. I wouldn't get an elective one if, if you had the choice. Um, I, I did not. Um, but, you know, I think like anything else, you can't kick the can on health and problems in your life. And I had them. And I was kicking the can and using work as an excuse. So I took some time off finally two years after the surgery. Um, I think a part of that was— Was that when we talked or after we talked? After we talked. Really starting After we talked, you were feeling better— you recovered, yeah. you were go-go on the business, and yeah. then things paused again. Well, I, as you know, my best friend passed away, um, who was Blake Krikorian, who was the founder of Sling, and the guy that actually took time off from work to help nurse me back to health. And I think that was a kick more than anything else that I wasn't prepared for. Um, he was a healthy guy. As you know, Blake was a super positive guy and someone who had a major role in my life. And I think after that, it re I really went you know, into a bad place. And then I think around November of last year, I said, you know what? I haven't taken time off. I mean, we talked about this last time, but I was curating in the ICU after my heart surgery. That's mental. Um, and at the time— But also understandable. Well, I think— Because you build this thing. It's your thing. It's your identity. And yep. especially when you're sick, you really want to cling to whatever you can. It's normal. You know, it's funny. I was having this discussion with Liz Plank, who's at Vox yep. uh, uh, Coffee the other week, and we were talking about how what's the idea of being a man— and this idea of that you hear that you, you can't show weakness and, you, and, and that you can't show vulnerability. The reality is I had a heart surgery. My best friend died. You know, things happen and it's okay to say that you need time off. I looked at that as weakness, a weakness in letting my investors down, weakness in the persona that I'm presenting to the audience. And the reality is that could be weakness, but I'll end up dead. So I decided to take some time off. And I'd also say this. I started covering politics, which was new to me, and it really hurt my heart. I mean, what's going on in the country now, regardless of whether you're a Trump fan or not, these were things that I naively thought we were post in this country. And having to go through 6,000 pieces of content a day and, and rifle through nastiness is, you know, hurting to the soul. So I took that time off and I came back um, uh, a couple of months ago. I think my writing's better than it's ever been before. I'm staying away from a lot of the negative politics stuff. I'm talking about personal stuff and media. Matt and I are working on the originals again that were great. And ultimately what I need to do for – the mistake that I made at Redef was very simple, which was I didn't think I was a good writer and I didn't think I was a good curator. I thought I came up with a model and that ultimately when I found someone who was smart, I would be CEO. And the reality is I became the talent draw and I'm not bad at it and I never should have been CEO. And I need a CEO that is ultimately going to understand subscription, tell me where to be. And I also don't have the ego to have to be that anymore. So I'm looking to rebuild the company now. Um, podcast is coming, a book is coming, um, more speaking engagements. And, you know, ultimately, I think we talked about this. I like doing this. I like learning about people I don't know. I like being uncomfortable. I think that our enemies and our friends are not one-dimensional in ways that we think. And I think there's a hole where Charlie Rose left off. Um, I don't interview like Charlie, but, you know, I think with humor and with curiosity, there is a hole there, and I think I'd like to take the business in that direction. Do you think you'd be equally happy if you were doing all this stuff, but someone else ran the company and it wasn't your company and you didn't have to worry about letting down investors or employees and you could do what you did, but someone gave you a sort of a uh, an apparatus where you could do this and you didn't have that additional stress? 
Um, well, well, I think shorter I think, version. Why not sell what you're doing? I know people would buy this from you. Yeah, I mean, I, I still Redef was always about building a company based off of an ethic, which is it's not enough to be smart. You have to be curious. And I'm the beacon for that, but Maddie Karras, who runs music, is way smarter than I am and way better writer and way better curator. I have shown that I can scale other sectors. I don't want to be involved in the operations of this company. I'm not the right guy for it. And I'm at the point in my life and my career where I'm, I want someone to tell me where to be. You know, there, my friend Roy Bahat, who's one of our investors, once said to me, it's a great line. He goes, when you're CEO, no one gives a shit. And you can't complain or you can't, you ha you're responsible it's for it. It's all your problem. It's all your problem. And I don't, I don't mind that aspect, but my value to the company now is my creative point of view. What I'm saying is, Jason, yeah. sell the company. It's not sell the company. It's find it, give it to a CEO to run it. And I just become one of the contributors. That's what I'm saying. All right. Unless if you, if you have you deal papers CEO, here, I don't know. Did Bankoff come I in here? I, we, we, we know people. We, we, people have said you, know that you should sell the company. And, I, and we know some people who could help you sell the company. Yeah. Oh, listen, it, ultimately, the goal is to have a liquidity event. Um, but I'm doing that through creating something I want to do. The mistake that I made, and I don't think I was there mentally understanding what I was really good at and what I wanted to do, is it's time that someone else is the guy at Redef. And I am a contributor to one vertical, and I do these media things, and it's what I love, and I'll be happy at. And the person that's going to because let's be honest, right? Yeah. Curating, sending out a link, sending out a list of links, yep. Getting on Twitter and yelling at people, you're going to yep. do that regardless of whether you have a company or not. Well, I don't know if I do the yelling as much anymore, but yes, I have interests and opinions. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yes. I mean, but that's it's, it's I'm actually. I'm not saying you're going to do it for free. No, I'm no. Saying you're gonna but do I, what I would also say is that that's part of the negative aspect of things, which is I want to be a little more constructive. The time off help me to do that. I still go after brands that screw us, but I'm so, I'm so excited to take, to give someone the reins of Redef. When I was at MTV, I had a guy named Nick Lehman, who was my COO. I went to bed every night knowing he had stuff handled. That is a unique thing that you can only trust certain people with. And when I find that person, I think my life's going to be a lot better. And, and I, and the company fails unless I do that. Okay. So email Jason, tell me about the job. Yep. You looking for something, Peter? No. No? I'm so not looking for something. All right. Well, you know, if, if things ever go if, bad. If, I mean, Jim, I know the Vox if, people. If Jim is listening. Yeah. They're, you have good people and you have good publications. Hour two, Jason Hirshhorn Hour is in the books. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, my friend. Thanks to you guys for listening. One more time, tell someone else about the show. It's great when you tell me that you love this show. Someone just emailed me and told me they listened to 40 hours of this stuff. I have to say, I, we list almost every podcast you have, and I have to say I listen to about 40% of them straight through. But this gentleman who claims he has a job... A job cool. involving being on television says yeah. he listened to 40 hours in the last, I don't know, two quarters. That, that alarms me. But thank you. Was that President Trump? <laughs> it was not. Uh, anyway, it's great if you tell someone else. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to us so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Jill Robbie who edits this show and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Golda, I can see your ghost here telling me to wrap it up. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Hey guys, have you seen the Vox show on Netflix? I have. It's called Explain. It's great. I talked to Ezra Klein about it for a while. You can go listen to that or you can just go watch it. Every episode is 15 minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, the topic is a question, can we live forever? Explore some questions you might want the answer to. What is it about old age that kills us and is it treatable? It shows you how long humans have lived throughout our history and how we brought that number up. 
Go check it out on Netflix. You have Netflix, and it's probably on your home screen right now. If it's not, search for Explained or for Vox. Or just go to netflix.com slash explained.